First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. One verse tonight, um, but it's going to be broken down into about three different parts. Um, so let's see what it has to say. In verse 17, it says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That's what we'll talk about tonight, okay? So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege to call you Father. We do thank you for that honor and that gift. And Lord, we ask that you would help us tonight. Lord, your word tells us that we cannot understand anything that is spiritual or anything that is of your word unless the Holy Spirit who uh, authorized and directed these words gives us guidance. And we pray for that. Lord, we're, we are desperate for that tonight. Lord, we, we acknowledge that uh, and we ask that you would come tonight and, and pierce our hearts and minds and souls and give us ears to hear the truths of your word. And Lord, we ask that, that we wouldn't just hear it, but we would put it into practice. We wouldn't be doer, hearers only, but also doers. That's our prayer tonight. We ask that you would give us clarity and bless your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you remember what we talked about or what we left off uh, on Sunday night, we had talked about that as obedient children not to be conformed. This was, uh, we went back to what Paul had mentioned in Romans chapter 12 about how we're not to be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. And he, we talked about how that we do this through the renewing of the mind. We, we, we labored that point on Sunday night over and over and over, that if you want to live a life that is holy or separate from the world, remember that God is the Holy One and He's the only one who can declare anyone holy. And when he calls you into himself and he changes your soul and he regenerates your being and he places his spirit in you through justification, you're declared righteous, you're declared holy, you're declared separate from the world. He's called you out of the kingdom of darkness. He's brought you into the kingdom of light and the one who can declare anything holy, the only one who can declare anything or anyone holy, declares his people holy. That means separate, set apart, other than. That's the, the, the primary reason and meaning of that, but it also means of pureness and of uh, upstanding character and in doing good things, pure. And he tells us that we are to be separate than the world in our actions and our beings, not to be conformed, but be transformed to the renewing of our minds. That's how we do it. It's the mind. You, you, your mind has to be uh, refilled. It has to be renewed daily to get these things in our hearts and souls. And he finishes up in verse 16. He said, listen, you have to be holy. You shall be holy, for I'm holy. There's a call of sanctification in the life of a believer. That there's to be separateness, other than this. They're to look at you and know that you're not of this world. That's what he's calling us to be here. And that comes to, to us through the Spirit, and through the renewing of the mind. That's what we talked about at, at length on Sunday night. And then it comes to verse 17, and he says this, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, we're talking about a specific people here. He says, if you address as Father the one, who's able to do that? Not everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone has that privilege. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that what? That we have received the spirit of adoption. This spirit comes from God. It's of God. He calls us to himself. He calls his family to himself. It is the spirit of adoption that we then can return, look at him and cry, Abba, Father. It's only by the spirit of God. It's only by the grace of God that we can call Him Father. We see this also in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where He says that what great love the Father has lavished upon us, what? That we shall be called the sons of God. He loves you. He calls you. He saves you. He gives you the spirit of adoption. Those are the people who can call Him Father. Not everyone can call Him Father. So this is... For the believer, this verse specifically, if you remember who the letter is talking to, it's who? It's the exiles. It's the chosen. Verse 1 tells us that. 
To those who reside as aliens scattered through the, the, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. These are the people who can call Him Father. And if you are a believer, and I'm a believer, that privilege is to us. This verse applies to us tonight. He says, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges, He's a perfect judge. He's a righteous judge. That's what the Bible tells us over and over again. There's no unfairness in His judgments. There's no unfairness when it comes to His verdicts. He's a perfect judge. He's got all the evidence. He's, he's weighing things out by the perfect, sovereign, holy being of himself. He's the perfect judge. He's not gonna, he doesn't discriminate based on age or economic status or color or gender. He, there's no impartiality there. Each person is going to be judged perfectly according to their works. But he's talking to a specific group here, and he says, listen, those who call him father... He impartially judges according to each one's works. But what does that mean for the believer? Will you stand in judgment? You will. The Bible tells us this. And we're going to get into some of these verses. However, when we are being judged, it's not going to be judged on our works as the merit of our salvation when we're in heaven. That's the beautiful thing. That those who are covered in the blood of Christ, those who have been justified, those who are wearing the righteousness of Christ, they will not be judged according to their works as the merit for salvation or entrance into heaven. If you remember back in Romans, he tells us that, that we have been freed from the law. That doesn't mean that we just live like we want. But he's saying we are set free from the law. The law has died to us. In what way? In what means has the law died to us? Because if you remember, we wrote on the board the, three fa or the threefold uh, purposes of the law a long time ago. It's to show the perfect nature of Christ. It's to, in that time, to restrain evil and to, and to, to corral the, 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 the people that it was governing at that time. And it's also to show what is pleasing to God. He says, if you love me, what? You keep my commands. So we know the law is there, but he says that those who have been justified, those who have been born again, they, they are the people that the law has died to. What does that mean? That means the law has died as your means of trying to get into heaven. The law is not what you're banking on to get into heaven. It's not what you're being judged on to get into heaven because you've been justified before the eyes of a holy God. So we know when we stand in heaven, those who call Him Father, when you stand before Him in judgment, it is not whether or not you're going to enter the kingdom of God. It is not for a loss of salvation based on how well you did. That's not what you're going to be judged for. What we're going to be judged for are the things that we've done on our time on earth as believers. And that's, that's a sobering thought. Isn't it? Think about your life. Think about your actions. When you stand before this God, if you are calling Him Father, if He's granted you that privilege, then you're not going to stand before Him and have fear that He's going to say, depart from me. Remember what justification is. You remember the great exchange? I had the privilege of doing the circles this uh, yesterday. Lose track of time. He who knew no sin became sin, your sin, my sin, atoned for. He became the propitiation for that sin, paid the price to tell us die, paid in full. He took upon the sin of his people, and he became the atonement. He became the propitiation. He paid that penalty. He paid it in full. It's the work of the Son on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin. So that what? Y'all remember this. So that you can become the righteousness of God. And when you can call Him Father, those who can call Him Father by His grace and love alone, on that day, do you know what will be seen of you as means to enter heaven? The perfect, active obedience in the righteousness of Christ. And when that's seen that day, 
There's only a few words that can be spoken. Enter in. Not because of your works, but because of His. That's the thing we have to get into this point, is that this is not for a loss of salvation. But it will be a time where we are judged. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? I mean, we talked, we just said that. Think about how long you've been a Christian. Think about your things you've done. Think about the, the, the works you've done for Christ. The things you've done to advance His kingdom. The things you've done that may look churchy and good and religious on the outside. But we're going to read a verse here in a little bit. But on that day that Christ will judge on the motives of the heart. And He's the only one that knows the motives of the heart. You may have done it with a mask on of disguise. You may have done it to fool everyone. But the things you've done in your Christian life, whether good or bad, they're going to be judged perfectly that day. The motives will be judged. You will stand before a holy God and all the, all the things that, that, that you have done will be perfectly and impartially seen. But let me just go back briefly before we get into that. I want to just want to read a few verses here of how that we will not be judged according to the law and the, the, the merit of our own works into heaven because it's already been paid for by Christ. And you'll see these on your sheet here in Romans chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. It says this. I do believe this is some of Sherry's favorite sections of Scripture. It says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. And listen to this. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Because they're covered in the righteousness of Christ. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now, yes, in the future tense as well, but right now, those who are covered by the righteousness of Christ, Paul can write under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He can tell his people in Rome then, and it goes to us today now, if you are of God, you've had the union with Christ, there is no condemnation. Now, what a beautiful thought. What a thought that is that you could stand with no condemnation right now because of the grace of God. John chapter 5 tells us this in verse 21 through 24. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Here's an interesting little section of Scripture. Even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone. But listen, He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. The good news just keeps ratcheting it up, doesn't it? Again, not your works, not you, but the righteousness of Christ applied. Who does he apply that to? Those whom he's called. That's a perfect, the glory of God is there. That he covers you in his righteousness. There's no condemnation. You don't come into judgment. Why? Because you've passed out of death into life. Where do you have, where we heard that terminology from? Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in sin, in the transgressions. You walked in the ways of lust of the soul like, like all the other people who did before Christ. By nature, you were deserving of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, according to his great love, what did he do? He raised you up with Christ. You know, when he says it's finished, you know what I believe that means? It's finished. He came to atone for the sin of his people. He came to lay his life down for the sheep. And he did that. We're going to talk about on Sunday what the most precious thing that has ever been on this earth. I'll give you a clue. 
It's the precious blood of Christ. There's nothing more valuable that's ever been on this earth than the Son of God and His blood. And it is that blood, it is that physical blood that was shed for the atonement of sin. It was paid in full. We've mentioned this before, but maybe you've not heard it, so let me say it in 30 seconds. In antiquity, if you had a debt, if you had a bill, if you had something that you owed, when it was paid in full, they would write the word tetelestai on it, and they would hammer it to the door of the person. They would hammer it to the place of whoever owned that place to let them know that their debt was paid in full. And in Colossians chapter 2, he tells us that very same thing happened to us. He took the handwriting of ordinances, all the certificate of death that stood against us according to the law. And where did he take it? He took it to the cross. He took your debt to the cross. And just as they would nail it to the doors in days of antiquity to show that the debt was paid, Christ goes to the cross places it there and utters the words to tell us die. Paid in full. That's why when you stand before God, those who call Him Father, you're safe, you're secure, you're finally home. John chapter 3, verse 18 says this, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is not on your sheet, but 1 John chapter 4, 17 and 18, it says this, Because of the love of Christ, we have confidence in the day of judgment. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with judgment. And if you are truly loved by God, because He loved you first, then you don't have to fear of the wrath and the fury of God on that day because fear has to do with punishment in that regard. But perfect love, the love of the Father, the love that has been lavished on us to call Him Father, if it's been applied to you, then you don't have the fear of the punishment and the wrath on that day only because of the grace and the love and the mercy of God. This is what we have to make these distinctions. Yes, there will be a judgment that day. But the Christian, those who call him Father, will not be judged whether or not they're going to enter heaven on their own merit. It's not what is going to happen. However, the believer will stand before God. The Bible tells us that every single human being that has ever been born on this earth, not one, there's not going to be one that's excluded. But you and I will have our moment when we stand before God. Think about that. There's going to be a moment in time when this God that we've read about, you stand before Him in judgment. I can't even, I can't even comprehend that. I believe it. I know it's going to happen. But to think that I would stand before God and give an account of myself, the things I've done in my body, whether good or bad, You see, here's the point of what's going to be made tonight of this verse. If you truly understand who God is, and you truly understand the fear of God, and you truly understand that you're going to stand before Him, even as a believer, and be judged according to your works, just like we mentioned on Sunday night, be holy, live holy in your life. When you start to understand that fact more, guess what you're going to do? You're going to live a lot more holy. This is the point that this verse is making. The believer will not be judged for loss of salvation, but rather will be judged according to their works as a believer and then recompensed accordingly. Merited for your works as a believer. This is where the, uh, we, we, we believe, you know, we see the doctrine of, uh, of being rewarded for certain things or being recompensed for certain things according to the things you've done. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12 says this, But you, why do you judge your brother? You remember this chapter, chapter 14? Matters of Adiophorus nature, the scruples, the weaker brother. This is where it's at. Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? 
for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You're going to give an account of your Christian life. Mm. You're going to give an account of the motives behind it, why you've done it, how you've done it. Again, not for loss of salvation, but you're going to stand before God and be judged for your things that you've done. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 3, where it's talking about... In this specific context, he's talking about people that go and they, they, they build on the foundation of the gospel and they come in and these people that are teaching and doing things and those motives and what they do and how they preach and how they teach, those are all going to be weighed as well. And listen to what this says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's works will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's works. If any, man, if any man's works which he has built on remains, he will receive a ward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet, as through the fire. Those things you've done as a Christian, they're going to be tested. You don't get a pass. You still stand before God. You still will stand, but it won't be whether you go to heaven or not if you're a believer, if you call Him Father. It'll be your Christian life. And those things will be tested. Those things will be tried. And it said if they've not had the right motives, if they've not been built on the right things, guess what? They'll burn up. There'll be no reward for you, but you'll still escape the fire. There's a judgment still coming. You will stand before God and give an account of yourself. This is why he immediately tells us this after the whole context of be holy, be obedient children, because you're going to stand before God who judges impartially. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And see, we've got to be very careful. And we have to be very reminded a lot of times that it's very easy to look the part of a Christian. It's very easy to do the Christian things. And it's very easy to go through these motions because you feel like these are the things you're supposed to do. But one day, all those motives, all the reasons behind all those things will come into the light. They're going to be tested. Why do you do the things that you do as a Christian? Why do I do the things that I do as a Christian? For the glory of man. So that people will look at me and say, hey, look at that guy. Do I do it because I know if I don't, then you guys are going to be like, why is he not doing that? Well, I got to do this because I got I to go face these people on Sunday. Can't do that. So I got to do this. Why do you do what you do in your Christian life? What is the motive of your heart? The motive of the heart has to be to please God. Not to please man, not to please yourself, but to please God. You can fool me, you can sometimes fool yourself, but you can't fool God. He knows. That's like the people who profess to be a Christian. Said in church, year after year after year after year after year, God knows. Why do you do what you do? What's the motive of your heart? Why are you here tonight? 
It's Thursday, got to be. It's Thursday, so I have to be here. If I'm not here, he's going to call me. I'm going to find out where I'm at, so i got to be here. Why are you here? Listen, it's good that you're here. But listen, you've got to come with the right motive. You've got to walk through the door with the right heart. When we come through that door, it's to be because we want to be pleasing to God. Because we want to honor Him. We want to worship Him. We want to learn about Him. We will all stand before God. But if you call Him Father, there's no fear of that punishment. Thanks be to God. He goes on to say this. Listen to this. If you address His Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's works, what's the, what's the point of this then? Conduct yourselves in fear. Why? Your time on this earth. I want to read some verses on the fear of God. And I will tell you this, this is the one thing that the church worldwide lacks. And this is the thing that all humanity lacks, is a true understanding of who God is. Haven't we labored this point a lot? We don't know who God is. We just don't know who He is. We're irreverent to Him so many times. We act like He's our buddy down the street, or He's the big man upstairs. No, He's not. No, He's not. He's the eternal King, full of glory and power, who's to be reverenced and worshipped and honored with every breath that you take. That's what His name merits, if you want to be honest. We don't fear God, because if we did, we wouldn't act like we do. We don't fear God because you can tell by the way we speak or we talk or we look or we do like the world does. You can, you can tell we don't fear God by the lack of time we spend in the Bible, by the lack of time we spend witnessing and evangelizing the people. If you truly feared God, then you would do everything to please Him and honor Him, myself included. Listen to these verses on conducting yourself in fear because Peter links the two. Be holy, for he's holy. Don't be conformed to the world. Because listen, if you call him Father, you're still going to be judged. And now you're going to be judged according to your walk with him. And here's what you need to know. You want to grow in wisdom? And you want to grow in a life of holiness? It starts with the fear of God. Listen to these verses. There's a bunch of them. We'll just read them quickly. Psalm 111, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commands. His praise endures forever. You're going to see a theme here. Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 33, 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. You see, this fear as a Christian is not the fear of punishment. No, you know, as the master to the slave, it was. Not that fear. But rather in reverence and awe of understanding who He truly is. That's what He says. We are to worship Him. We are to fear Him. And we're to stand in awe of Him. Because if you truly fear Him and you truly stand in awe of Him, do you know what your life is going to represent if you're a true Christian? It's going to get more holy and more sanctified as you walk. Those two things go hand in hand. Your fear of the Lord and your sanctification, they're joined. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. I walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. How irreverent we are of God's name, aren't we? Even the Christian. We throw it around like it's nothing. The Lord's Prayer starts off with telling us to make His name hallowed and holy. Proverbs 1, 7, again, we hear this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2, 5. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. 
Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. How about that verse? Remember when we were in Romans chapter, I believe it was 12, and it says that we are to hate or abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. That word abhor means to absolutely loathe. It's one of the strongest words of intense hatred that you can find in that language where he says abhor. We find that in Proverbs, that the Lord abhors those who do evil. Do you hate evil? He says to hate the things that God hates, to abhor the things that God hates, to abhor the evil, but to cling to what is good. And if you remember that study in Romans, what that word cling means in the original Greek, the imagery there is the glue, or clinging to, cementing to. So whenever you find the truth, you hold on to it with all you got and you don't get carried away by generation or what the world says at the time or by popular opinion or by culture. You hold to the truth and it's glued to you that you're to abhor the evil. And you just heard right here that when you begin to fear the Lord, you begin to hate evil. And then when you begin to understand the weight of evil, guess what your life will represent? Walking in holiness like he tells you to. Not being conformed. If you know that God abhors evil, if you know that God hates sin, if you know the things that God detests, then we as believers should have no part of them. Or accept them or... or and to, to, to just be like, yeah, they're okay. Well, we'll just kind of, everybody's got their own thing. That's not what he tells us to do. We're to be peculiar, called out from the world. Do you fear the Lord? Do you stand in reverence and awe of him? Or is his name no big deal? Is his commands no big deal? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 23.17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. This goes right along with what we read in verse 17 of 1 Peter. Because he partially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. That is paralleled here with Proverbs 23, 17 that says that live in the fear of the Lord always. And Job 28, 28 says, And to the man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. You'll see, the more you fear God, the more you understand God, the more you learn about God, the more you see what He hates, then you'll begin to live a life accordingly, separate from the world, pleasing to God, do you fear God? Do you stand in reverence and awe of Him? Do you feel the weight of the glory of God? The modern church doesn't know how to worship God. We think it's running around and dancing and screaming. and I... True, honest, reverent worship is on your face before God. Being reverent. Proskuneo is the word we get for that. Weighty, on your face, before the living God, fear. That should be our prayer as a Christian. I challenge you tonight. When's the last time you prayed, God, please, no matter what it, well, what it does to my life, I'm asking you, please, more than you ever have, show me who you are. Teach me how to have a holy fear of you. When's the last time you prayed that? God, teach me to have a holy fear of you. Teach me to reverence you. God, teach me to be in awe of you and to understand who you truly are in all the magnitude and the weight of your glory. I challenge us this week to begin to pray that and watch your life begin to change. I want to go to a passage of Scripture in Exodus 20 if I can. Actually, we'll start in Exodus 19. I want you to get the sense of this. And I may read a few verses here just for context. Because if you know anything about understanding the Bible, 
I'm going to quote Chris Roseboro here, who says, the three, sound rules for, uh, for the three rules for sound biblical exegesis are this. Context, context, and context. So we're going to bring you some context. This will be the, the main section of here. Of, as, this, we'll cover this, and then we'll begin to wind down. But this is found in Exodus chapter 19. And this is the scene on Mount Sinai. It was the third month after the sons of Israel had left the land of Egypt. They, they came to the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses is called up. He's called to go back down and give instruction to the people. And, and I, I just want you to see the holy power of God. Because what these people saw this day, I want you to see the response. And I want you to see why God did what he did. It's truly amazing. It parallels exactly what we're talking about tonight. You want to live a holy life? You want to live a life more conformed to God and not the things of the world? Then you began to pray for him to show you who he is. Began to show you true reverence and awe for him. And to teach you how to fear him properly. Here's where we're going to start out. Let's start out in verse 7. What I just told you there covered the first six verses. They marched for three months. They come to the mountain. Here we are. It says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before him all the words which the Lord had commanded. Let me say this. It's about context. Mount Sinai is going to represent the law. This is where the law of God is going to come from. And he's getting ready to tell them, listen. And before he said, listen, you keep my commands, you do these things. Here's the goodness. Here's the blessings. Keep that in mind. Mount Sinai represents the law. We see that also in Hebrews. I believe it's chapter 12 where he says, you didn't come to this mountain of fear and trembling, but you come to Mount Zion. So this is representing the law and our inability to keep it. And he says this. All the people answered together and said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay. Listen, you keep my commands, you do it all, you're going to have these blessings, nothing will happen. And what do the people say? You go tell God. We'll do everything he says. Don't worry about us down here. We've got it covered. We'll keep all the law. We'll keep everything. You go tell God nothing to worry about. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, The people, behold, I will go, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the people will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, uh, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Do you see what's happening here? This law, this mountain representing the law. The people said they'll keep it all. And God says, don't even think that you can take one step on this mountain and live. How dare you think you can come in my perfection, thinking you can keep the law perfectly. You can come before a, a holy God. Tell me you're going to keep it all. This represents perfection and power and glory, and you can't keep the law. That's why you're going to need a Savior. And by the way, let me tell you how worthy you are. Take a step on this mountain and you die. If an animal steps on this mountain, guess what? Let him die too. There's not one creature that's worthy to stand in the presence of the holy God and live. You see the scene begin to take place on Mount Sinai. 
Let me say this before we move on. That's what we do. When we think we can enter heaven on our own works and our own righteousness, we think that we can stand before that mountain, Mount Sinai, with the full glory and the power of God at the top and think that we can traverse this mountain on our own works and our own goodness. But the Bible tells us all who try to live by the law, guess what happens? Everyone is held accountable. Everyone is standing before God with their mouths closed and everyone will be condemned to eternal damnation. You can't go on that mountain, and neither can I. No one can. But someone did come to complete the full law of God perfectly. The Son of God. And what He did allows that to be met in you. And allows you to stand before this God on that day of judgment that we talked about. And not die. But live. And not just live, but live forever with Him. This is an intense scene that's going on on Mount Sinai. Don't overlook the fact that He says, don't even touch it. And if you die, no one's going to touch you. Because if they touch you, they're going to die too. He says this in the last part of verse 13. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Be sexually pure. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very large, loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Here comes the glory of God. Here comes the power of God. Thunder and lightning flashes, thick clouds, a sound of a trumpet, and the people in the camp trembled. In this scene, in the presence of God. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Can you imagine that scene? Stop and think. Don't just go over the words. Listen to what is happening. Have you ever been just woken up with the sound of thunder? It terrifies you. I know Mark and Sherry had lightning come into their house. Can you imagine on this mountain? They're at the base of this and they're looking up to this mountain and the mountain is just shaking. And the smoke is covering the mountain and the smoke is ascending up into the heavens. And there's thunder like you've never heard and there's lightning crashing all around and you hear the trumpet. And these people are looking up on this mountain for the glory of God. This is the scene that's happening. This is the power of God. This is the glory of God. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the mountain for you warned us saying, set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So now you see the scene of now here comes the Ten Commandments. We all know the Ten Commandments. Do you see the scene that the Ten Commandments are given in? It's not this, hey, here's some some suggestions. Go do what I'm saying here. No, no, no. This is in the power and the majesty of God trembling on that mountain. And now he comes and speaks his law. Let's read the law in reverence and fear. How many times have you just seen them on a statue? How many times have you seen them on a monument? How many times have you just read through them because you know them all? You see the context of why and how God is revealing this command. Listen to them now. They're at the base. They're looking up. The mountain is quaking, thunder, lightning. Listen. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain." Let me say this really quickly. Taking the Lord's name in vain, if you study that out, that is not just meaning saying His name in an ill-fitting manner. But that is to speak and to say that God has said something He has not said. To say God has said this. To take God's name and speak it in something that is vain or untrue is also taking the name of the Lord in vain. That's why false prophets, false teachers will say, the Lord thundered down. Kenneth Copeland will tell you that he's, he's seen God in his house and he's, he's heard his audible voice. Jesse Duplantis says that he went into his office one day and he saw Jesus physically sitting at his office and Jesus was very sad and, and Jesse Duplantis went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, let me give you a hug. And they hugged it out and then Jesus told Jesse that now he feels better. These are the people that you'll find in the bookstores, typically of Christian book, not Christian bookstores, but mainstream bookstores. These are false teachers. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. When they say, God told me this, I heard him say this, they're taking in the Lord's name in vain. And the Lord doesn't take that lightly. Do you want to know how you can tell what the Lord has said? You go to His Word. He will never contradict His Word. If you hear somebody say something, and you can't go to the text of Scripture and back it up, you've got to be very careful. You know, the penalty for false prophets in the Old Testament was death. Just saying. He continues to go down. And say this, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is the type and shadow if you remember this. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. If you, that in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner, or your sojourner who stays with you. Interesting there. He's writing this to the children of Israel, isn't he? You see that word sojourner in there when it concerns the Sabbath? Why would that word be in there? Because who can enter into that Sabbath rest? Not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. That sojourner means wonder, not the one that is by ethnical descent, Israel, but the one who will be called later. Isn't that amazing? That little word, when it comes to the Sabbath and also the sojourner, the Gentile who be grafted in, they'll have that Sabbath day rest as well. The beauty of the word is it's amazing. All right, we're going to get through it, I promise. For in, this, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There's the Ten Commandments. What is your reaction when you hear that? Let's see what happened this day. You ready? Verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. They are overwhelmed with what they're feeling and seeing and experiencing that day. 
They are seeing the theophany of God on this mountain. And they say, Moses, listen, you please, please speak to us because we, if we hear the words of God, we can't handle it. We'll die. So overwhelmed by his power and his transcendent glory. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Here's the, here's the, here's the whole thing. Listen. For God has come in order to test you. Listen. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you. Why? What have we talked about from the start? You want to live a holy life. You want to be a life that's not conformed to the world. He's going to judge you for your Christian life. You're going to stand before him. And how do you live this life of separation? First he calls you, but then you renew your mind. You, you get into the word and you pray that he begins to teach you the fear of God. Look why he says the Lord was on that mountain trembling and shaking that place and testing these people. He says, so that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. You see that? He says, I want you to see this glory. I want you to see who I am. I want you to see the reverence and all that you feel. That you can't even, you're not even worthy to speak his name. You're not even worthy that he would speak to you. That you're trembling and under the power and weight of this God. He says, listen, don't be afraid, but fear God. He came to do this so you would fear him. And that fear would lead to one thing. That you wouldn't sin. This is what 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17 is saying. The more you fear God, the more you truly understand who He is, you will sin less. If you know who God is, you know what displeases Him, you know what He hates, and you have fear and reverence in all of this God, then that changes our actions. That changes our behavior. That changes how we treat Him. We don't come to Him in a flippant way. We don't come to Him in our nonchalant attitude and effort. We come to Him for who He truly is, the God of the universe. They had it right. He doesn't even... We don't even deserve for Him to speak to us, let alone come and die, let alone to come and show you mercy, let alone to cover you with His own righteousness. And that's the only way you can stand before him on this day of judgment. But you still will judge, be judged for your works as a Christian. And he says, if you want those works to be pure and you want it to be recompensed for what you do, then pray the fear of God invade your soul. Because when you get that, when you walk in the fear of God, you will sin less and live a more holy and consecrated life. There's a term that's called quorum deo. It basically means living before the face of God. Do you stop and think about that? Today, when you walked about your daily life, did you think that everything that you did, every second of your day, you were living before the face of God? I heard a story a preacher said one time. He said his mentor, he, he, he was just starting to preach. And his mentor, it was his first time his mentor was sitting in the congregation. And he said it made him a nervous wreck. And he said he went up to his mentor and fellow preacher. And he said, i got to be honest with you. You know I love you. You know that you're my mentor. You've been my help and my teacher here on earth. He says, I absolutely hate that you're here today. I said, what do you mean? He goes, because I'm so nervous. And I'm going to say something maybe that's an error. I'm going to say something where I get tripped up and you're seeing me and you're watching me. And I just want to do well for you. I want you to be proud of me. I don't want you to think I don't know what I'm doing. And I hate that you're here. You know what 
this pastor said to the young pastor? He said, what are you talking about? You're nervous that I'm here. He said, son, don't you ever forget this. No matter what preacher, no matter whatever person is in the congregation, every time you stand up, you've got another audience member who's watching you. And every message you preach, you're preaching before the face of God. That goes to our Christian lives. You may say, I'm alone, no one sees me. You may say, it really doesn't matter. This one single moment, this one single act doesn't matter. If we understand who God is, and we begin to understand the fear that we're supposed to have, the reverence and awe we're supposed to have of this God, and to understand that we are living every moment of our lives, Cormdeo, before the face of God, it would change our lives. Can we start to do that? Challenge this week. Would you pray that the fear of God invade your soul? And you remember that every second, every moment, everything you do, He knows the motives, and you're living before the face of God every second of your life. He says that you're supposed to live out in reverent fear while you're here on this earth and you stay on earth. Back in 1 Peter, he says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Let me just say this quickly as we close. The Greek words here that come together of this stay on earth means exiles means sojourners. Where, where do we see sojourners at? We just read it. That's why I brought it up to you. That you have that Sabbath rest too. Because you're a Gentile. And it's been grafted to you as well. These are the exiles. They're not in their true homes. We've labored that in the first few verses of this chapter. But we also see some similar uses of this word in a couple places in the Bible. I just want to mention them briefly. We see it in Acts 13, 17, which, when it's describing as the Israelites living in the land of Egypt. We also see it in Ezra 8, 35 to describe Israel who has been in exile to Babylon um, and they will be brought back to their true home. Now, here's the deeper context of this is that because we see that this word exile stays on earth, sojourners, because it was mentioning of Israel in the Old Testament, and we see that it, we now know that there's a new covenant and the Jew and the Gentiles being grafted in, we take this and see the greater context is spiritual Israel, who is in exile, who is Roman, who is sojourner, who's spiritual Israel, not just Israel by physical descent, but those who are the children of God according to the promise. They believe in faith like Abraham. Romans 9, 6 through 8. And this group right here, this group of exiles and sojourners that are not in their true home, who he's commanding to live a life in reverent fear before God so that you can live a holy life before him and be separate from the world. Do you know who this group is? This group is the same group that he starts this verse on. This is the group of people who can look up to heaven and pray those words. My Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, let us be changed tonight. Lord, let us feel the weight of your glory. Let us feel the weight of your majesty. Lord, let us feel the absolutely indescribable distance of who we are versus who you are. God, I pray that you would begin to teach us Holy fear of you, God, that you would begin to change our lives and souls. You would begin to just show us who you truly are. Show us just the magnitude of your being, God. Show us who you are and let us begin to, to, to reverence and, and, and be in awe of you, God. In our worship, in our actions, God.
And as we begin to live and we walk in through this, this life as an exile, Lord, as we, as we walk here on this earth, Lord, help us to know who you are. And Lord, let that be in our mind every day that we're walking before your face. And you judge us according to our motives. We'll stand before you. We give you the praise not for loss of salvation or our standing in our own merit for salvation, but God, we want to please you in this, in this life and, 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 and please you and be obedient to you. Lord, help us to have the right motives and Lord, help us to fear you in a holy, reverent way. That way we could be conformed to you and not of this world. God, I pray that for me. I pray that for all these people in here tonight. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.